Hey, what's up, hello? In the words of Fetty Wap, hey, what's up, hello? And I hope your Friday is going well. Just off the bat, Alex Kapitko here, Centered from Reality Podcast, and I just wanted to note that you are probably seeing an episode out this morning. I actually recorded that episode last night, but for some reason, when I put it out last night, none of the apps were registering it. Usually I go on Spotify to share it to Instagram and Facebook and all the other social media apps I use, and for some reason it wasn't showing up. So I checked again this morning, and it still wasn't showing up in any of the main Apple iTunes, Spotify, Google Play platforms. So I had to re-upload it and change the name a little bit, and it came out this morning. So you will probably see two episodes out today. The episode right now is the Friday episode. The episode you saw this morning is the Thursday episode. So just wanted to clarify all of that. We have a lot to talk about today. Actually, we're going to mainly focus on domestic issues today. I want to talk about Biden's new chief of staff, who I am not a fan of, and I think it's actually counterintuitive to what Biden's been really good at doing. And then I want to talk about the RNC chair election circus, shit show, clusterfuck, whatever else you want to call it. And... We'll touch on a few other things as well, including a fireball lawsuit. So if you're one of the people who likes those little tiny fireball shots they sell in liquor stores or on airplanes, you've been lied to. Luckily, I don't like those. I find it an atrocious beverage. But yeah, looks like fireball's in some deep trouble. So I do want to start by saying our friend, our good, good friend, George Santos or Henry DeVolder or whatever else he's, what is it, Katara or whatever, the drag queen. I I mean, whatever he is, he's something. And either way, apparently now all the money that he's come across, he's admitted he didn't get from campaign funding. So now there's new questions about where the hell did this guy get his money from? I've, I've touched on this before. Election finance laws are pretty corrupt in the United States. But there's specific things that you need to do. And if these new revelations are correct, and we don't know where these giant sums of money came from, this actually could be the final nail in the coffin to get this guy out of office. Because honestly, I don't think anything else would get this guy out of office. He is clearly shameless. He has that Trumpian instinct to survive. And... I think the only way he could really get out of this, or, or get, get kicked out of Congress, what I mean, is if they find that he violated election finance laws. And it is interesting because we've read reports over the year about how this guy you know, was evicted from multiple apartments. He couldn't pay rent in multiple apartments. All of a sudden, he has hundreds of thousands of dollars going to these expensive dinners, trying to wine and dine clients. You have Elise Stefanik working to get others to donate to him. Seems like a big grift, and it's very fascinating in a lot of ways, but this might be what finally sinks this titanic lie that this guy is riding on. And I don't know if you guys have seen that show. I, I've, I watched some of it. It wasn't really for me. It was called, what, Inventing Anna or whatever. It's about that gal who pretended to be a German heiress and pretty much just laundered a bunch of money and stole a bunch of money and created a personality for herself. Well, this is, <laughs> I think George Santos really is becoming a mix of her and Matt Damon's character in The Talented Mr. Ripley. So I don't know, by next week, maybe we're going to find out that this, I don't know, Santos is some like 
shape-shifting alien for all I know. Nothing would surprise me anymore. But anyways, I wanted to start with something kind of light and, I guess, troubling for your palate. According to NPR, consumers are suing Sazerac Company Incorporated, which are the makers of Fireball Whiskey. And they are suing Sazerac for fraud and misrepresentation. Apparently, those mini bottles of Fireball don't actually contain whiskey. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking about this because I was at an Ohio State Northwestern game back in, oh God, I think it was November, maybe early December. And I saw people in front of me downing these little bottles. And they constantly kept mentioning, oh, let's take another shot of whiskey. They were having a good time. Clearly, they were probably some of the people who are now furious because they were not drinking whiskey. Instead, they were drinking something much worse and cheap. And anyways, I always hated Fireball. Had a few bad experiences in my younger days. It's an atrocious liquor, so sorry not sorry if I'm offending some Fireball enthusiasts out there. But anyways... It sounds like these bottles are even worse than my palate's already told me they are because according to an NPR article in quotes, the smaller bottles named Fireball Cinnamon are made from a blend of malt beverage and wine. <sighs> God. And the article continues, while the whiskey-based products are called Fireball Cinnamon, they actually contain no whiskey. And that is disgusting. I mean, malt beverage and wine. These companies just get away with so many things. And... The article continues anyways, saying, Upon closer inspection, customers realized the description of the product was malt beverage with natural whiskey and other flavors and caramel color. Sounds like a really natural, refreshing beverage, doesn't it? So I don't know why I'm talking about this, but if you had any reason not to drink Fireball ever again, this might be one of those. And I mean, I guess like, I mean, some people I've seen online say, oh, this is defrauding the customer, lying to the customer. I guess it does say it on the bottle, but you do have to kind of wonder, like, it does, you know, the products are called Fireball Cinnamon Whiskey. I guess people don't have, like, I guess in this era, people shouldn't be expected to have to read the ingredients when something is called something, right? I guess, hey, I, I, I guess nothing surprises me anymore, but it'll be kind of fun to see where this goes. I mean, I'm kind of hoping that Fireball just kind of goes down or gets discontinued. I think it's the same beverage that they found that the original Fireball actually had like antifreeze in it or something. So anyways, like lesson, if you're a younger person listening to this or anyone who likes their palate, maybe just stop. Just stop with the Fireball. Moving on to actual news, <laughs> more serious topics than a fraudulent small bottle of whiskey. There is some good news I briefly wanted to talk about, and it's about Spain. Spain's economy is bouncing back. It's recovering from the pandemic. And I told you guys back in September when I was back visiting Madrid, I was talking to a lot of people, and the country was relatively struggling, generally speaking, talking about inflation, fuel prices being raised, the pandemic. I remember I had a taxi driver when I was driving out to visit the family. He was telling me, you know, like or dislike Trump, like or dislike Biden, at least both of them helped approve stimulus checks to help keep people, uh, keep people afloat. And he and the driver was just telling me that, you know, he had to basically find ways to make money and the government was really not too helpful. And so Spain has really been struggling. And, and don't get me wrong, it still has a lot of chronic issues going forward. 
But there's a good um, Economist article that looks at GDP figures for 2022. And the article starts by saying it was the worst of times, then the best of times. And the reason it starts with this is because in January 2022, there was an index by The Economist that ranked 23 countries recovering from the pandemic, and it put Spain in last place. However, a year later, that same index has been updated and Spain's actually now in fourth place, almost third place. And it's it's really good news. Um, annual annual inflation in Spain is actually, I mean, it's not great. Look, it's not great, but it's better than everyone else in the Eurozone. It's running at 5.6% in December, which is the lowest in the, in the Eurozone because the interesting thing is, and I actually wrote a paper about this a while ago, is that Spain doesn't really consume a lot of Russian gas. They get a lot of gas from Algeria and a lot of North Africa. Same with Italy as well. And the main share price index has made up a lot of its losses here. Also, the unemployment rate is the lowest since 2008, which is huge. And tourism has rebounded quite strongly after last year. And I know that for a fact. I know a lot of people that have been to Spain over the last year. I've been to Spain over the last year. And the country is doing fairly well. And even on January 27th, so today, the country did announce GDP growth of 5.5%, which is way better than expected. And that was over the, the entire 2022 period. The IMF does forecast growth, though, of just 1.1% going into 2023. So we'll have to keep that in mind. Now, the problem here is that right now, the center-left PSOE party, which I guess you could kind of call, I don't want to say they're totally like Biden, but they're definitely like center-left, not very radical. Like Podemos is more of the like Bernie Sanders types or the AOC types in the U.S., but Pedro Sanchez runs the PSOE, center-left socialists, and he's been getting a lot of shit, is basically how I would put it. He has been getting a lot of criticism over the last year, and it makes sense if you look at how poorly Spain was doing for a while. And so this is good for him, because this year they are holding local elections in May and a general election, I think, in like November or December of 2023, so at the end of this year. And, of course, the opposition party, Pepe, is arguing that things are objectively bad. Pe Pepe's a, a party that I sometimes agree with, though I don't like some of the coalition building they've done with the far-right Vox, which is kind of a Steve Bannon-esque type of party. But anyways, without getting into the nitty-gritty of Spanish politics, um, Pepe is arguing that things are just bad and GDP and consumption have been slow to return to pandemic levels. But again, this is not all true, and Pepe's picking up a lot of these talking points that the right is doing in the United States, focusing on the bad economy, focusing on inflation, blaming the other side, but not having a lot of actual solutions. And of course, like the Pepe party, the People's Party, does not have everything wrong. I mean, I've looked at some numbers here before this, this episode, and... Wage growth is not doing well compared to infla inflation. Inflation's biting into incomes. And the price of like olive oil, which is a Spanish standard, has shot up by like 40 to 50%, depending on the numbers you're looking at. And so things are not good, but it's going to be an interesting battle going into this because technically Spain is going into this year in better shape than a lot of other EU countries. And to me, that is great news, but we'll have to see if that actually lasts. And... Some do think that 
Spain's growth is not just because Spain is doing well. And I'm sure Pedro Sanchez of Pessoa doesn't want to hear this, but The Economist at least argues that this modest growth is mainly because of the EU's recovery programs. And because Spain is one of the less rich countries in the bloc, it received a shit ton of grants and loans, I think like 77 billion euros. So that is a lot. And Spain was good at using those funds. And so now this is something that me being more of a libertarian small government guy likes is the actual reason why Spain was able to use these grants and loans in a good way is because you have their autonomous regions and Spain has a very decentralized government, right? You have these autonomous zones, autonomous regions that all have very strong local and provincial governments. And they were actually really able to allocate the funds in a lot of good ways that help these different regions. Because we have to remember that like Aragon in the north is very different from Andalusia in the south, for example, or the Basque country or Galicia or even Madrid in the center here. And so I think one of the reasons why Spain was so able to recover over the last year is because of this decentralized approach to loans. And one would argue, and I would argue this, this was actually an effective use of EU grants, and it's a good case for decentralized governance and more states and localities using money for benefits. And that's good to see. Now, of course, there are criticisms to be held here, right? There's a lot of black market jobs in Spain that are not being taxed. And of course, during the pandemic, the black market sector, you could, you could call it the informal economy, if you wanted to put it more lightly, has blown up. So the government's not getting all of the taxes it wants. And also, it's not able to actually get social security programs or other aid programs to people. And there's also kind of a structural deficit inside of Spain that's an issue as well. And so pensions are also a big issue. As I've talked about before, a lot of Western Europeans do not want their pensions messed with. And I guess I get it, but it's a ticking time bomb. And there's a, there's a good section of that Economist article that says pensions remain in deficit with the general budget used to cover annual shortfalls of at least 1.5% 1, 1. of GDP. But few expect the reforms currently being discussed to be enough to make the system sustainable when Spain's younger than average baby boom generation retires. And Spain does have a very big younger generation. And there's not a lot of money at the top right now because you have to remember that you had the, Spain, the, the, the Franco era and a lot of malnutrition, aging population, all that. So that's going to be pretty interesting. So look, the sunny economic news is good, but Spain has a lot of chronic problems. And also Pepe, the center-right party, wants to do well in elections coming up at the end of this year. And it's going to be interesting to see. But I guess for now, the good news is that Spain's economy is doing much better than the 2022 GDP index was reporting. So I'll, I'll leave on that for now, but interesting stuff for sure. Anyways, I want to spend the rest of the episode in the United States. So I could talk extensively about how both the finding of classified documents in Biden's case and in Mike Pence's case have helped Donald Trump. A couple weeks ago, if you asked me if Trump was going to be indicted for this, or at least maybe face ramifications that would make him not fit to be president, I think my answer would have been yes. Unfortunately, now you have Pence and Biden in a jam. And I think for the first time, Trump is now kind of resurging again. And it's too bad 
They couldn't. Again, I've said this time and time again, if you're going to shoot the king, you can't miss. And it looks like, again, they missed. Or at least they injured him, but it wasn't a lethal injury. So again, Trump is slowly like coming back into predominance. New polls are showing that in a head-to-head race, he actually could beat Biden for the first time in a while. And like I said, if Trump somehow got back into office, it would be the end of democracy as we know it. And I, I think next week I want to get into Trump's resurgence more, but... Biden is not having a good time right now because unfortunately, like things were kind of looking up for him. And then this classified document issue, along with Mike Pence's, are just not good. But I want to talk about another issue that Biden has. I wanted to dive into the fact that it looks like he is bringing in a new chief of staff. And like I said, next week, maybe we'll get into more of the other issues, the 2024 issues. But for now, The Economist writes in quotes here, President Joe Biden named Jeff Zients to replace Ron Klain as the White House chief of staff. Zients, a businessman who co-owns a popular bagel chain in D.C. By the way, I don't know why they need to tell us that. But anyways, continuing, he coordinated the Biden administration's COVID response. The reshuffle does come at a delicate moment. Mr. Biden is under fire for his mishandling of classified documents as his party gears up for a presidential re-election campaign next year. And I guess I wanted to spend some time talking about this because, well, I'll just spoil you my take right now. Uh, I think this is a bad choice. Biden has actually done way better than I've thought. He's become much more of an economic populist, much more of a protectionist than I've thought. And he's been also much more willing to adopt some progressive issues than people expected. And it's interesting because Ron Klain was really part of a lot of this, but it seems like Zients is just a corporatist at his core. He is someone who's been on the opposite side of a lot of what the younger Democratic base wants. And even if I don't agree with that base, I understand the importance of it for Biden's reelection in a lot of ways. And it's an interesting choice to bring this guy in. I listen to Pod Save America sometimes because I actually do really like Tommy Vitor and Ben Rhodes who do Pod Save the World. Pod Save America is literally like a cheerleading network for the Obama administration and now the Biden administration. If you want any criticism of Biden or Obama, you do not go to them for it. And some like I definitely like Pod Save the World more than Pod Save America. But anyways, I'll, I'll digress on that is... Pod Save America had an episode. One of the hosts basically praised Zients as one of the greatest public managers. And this was John Favreau, who was a speechwriter for Obama. And he even said that he has a problem with people criticizing Zients over his resume instead of his record. He said, he said in quotes here, I generally have a problem with criticism that is only about someone's past and resume and not of the actual decisions and policies they have implemented during their time in government. And, you know, going off of this as well, Democratic lobbyists also have praised Zients for his time in the administration. They seemed, let's just say the corporate world, likes what Zients did under Obama. And first off, I think what Favreau, who I don't have any issues with Favreau, I think sometimes he has some interesting takes. I think he's a smart guy. He's not some radical leftist or anything, but I think he has blind spots when it comes to Obama and Biden. And I think it's kind of insane to say that (laughs) 
you shouldn't just criticize someone's past and resume because I want to dive into the resume of someone like Zines because someone's resume does tell a lot about what they do and what they stand for. And it just doesn't help the case because a lot of the people like Favreau and the Pod Save America bros, other lobbyists, Biden himself, the people defending him are mainly Democratic establishment types who have a stake in this, right? And they like what he does because they were part of it or want to be part of it or whatnot. And yeah, this guy's resume is interesting. It's a kind of antithetical to everything Biden's been doing recently. So before I get into my further rants and analysis, Jeffrey Zient's first job out of college was in 1988, and it was at Bain and Company, which is one of the most powerful management consultancies in the country. Fine. Good for you, bro. And this is already, though, interesting, and I guess somewhat contradictory, because if you know anything about the Romney-Obama debates in 2012... Obama vigorously attacked Mitt Romney for his corporate dealings with Bain and company because Romney was actually CEO of Bain and company and later led the spinoff, I'll call it, Bain Capital. And it's interesting because both these guys loved Bain Capital. And according to a newsletter from Bain Capital, or sorry, Bain and company, Zients said when he was younger, he fell in love with Bain's culture, teamwork, and analytical rigor. And it's ironic because Obama attacked, like, attacked Romney during the 2012 debates for exactly the culture and what Bain Capital was doing. But then he also appoints a guy to all these positions who also liked it, was involved in it. And when you really kind of take a step back and think about that, it's like, I personally like Romney, but if you're on the Obama side of attacking Romney for what he did in his past then maybe you should look at the guy that you've put in high-profile positions. And anyways, Zients, so, so Zients works for Bain & Company. He also worked in other private sector organizations. One was the Advisory Board, which is a small management consultancy, which focuses on healthcare insurance and healthcare companies. He kind of bounced around other wealth management groups for a while. But in 2009... It was President Obama who appointed him to be, I guess, the inaugural position, the first new position for United States Chief Performance Officer and Deputy Director for Management of the Office of Management and Budget. And this was his first experience. And during this time, you also then saw the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare have a lot of website issues. And he was also involved in streamlining the rollout and making it better. And for his defense, he was actually quite good at getting the website better because, as I mentioned earlier, he did have experience in healthcare and healthcare management. And now I would say Obamacare didn't actually solve the problems that we have with healthcare in this country. And maybe Zients wasn't the right guy to do it because he's always been a private health insurance guy. But anyways, yes, he gets involved under Obama in 2009. But then going further, from 2014 to 2017, he was an assistant to Obama for economic policy, and he even became director of the National Economic Council. He also chaired the president's management advisory board, and <laughs> I love this one. The Wall Street Journal, according to Wikipedia, called Zients a kind of ambassador to the business community. And if you go down this even further, 
Lobbying groups such as the Business Roundtable and the U.S. Chamber of Comment, sorry, Comments, Commerce, praised zines as someone who heard them out. <laughs> yeah, right when you have the 2008 recession, you have all these banks playing with people's money and this bubble burst out of greed and insanity. Just what you want is a guy involved who is willing to hear them out. I'm sorry, but that's just not okay to me. And... Yeah, so then, let's see. I'm just going through some of the other things he did. He was director, yeah, like I said, National Economic Council. Oh, yeah, this is a fun one, too. He was also on the Facebook board of directors after Obama during the Trump era from 2018 to 2020. And for some reason, which I don't understand this, please tweet at me and tell me if I'm wrong, but... He was the coordinator of the COVID-19 response in the Biden administration after replacing Deborah Burks. Look, I, I'm not a big Deborah Burks fan. She let Trump get away with a lot of bullshit. But Deborah Burks is a doctor. I don't. It's just weird to me you would have someone like Zients be kind of heading the COVID response. But anyways, he has been busy. He's been very involved. And I want to in a bit get into some of the more policy issues that I have with him. But this is a guy who has always been a friend of business, as you can clearly see from all of this. Now, moving on, usually the American prospect is way too liberal, way too left, way too progressive, whatever other adjective you want to use for it. But in this case, the magazine actually has a fairly accurate account on why Zients is not good. And it's by Max Moran, Moran, sorry, and it's called The Myth of Jeffrey Zaints. And it discusses how there's no reason to trust this guy who's been a longtime corporate stooge, and he should not serve as Biden's chief of staff, especially in this era and with what these people want. I think the article's great, though, because it highlights his government experience and just pinpoints what he's done to make corporate business better. And why he's always protecting those with power and influence over those that actually need help. And it looked really bad after the 2008 housing bubble collapse. But anyways, the, for example, the article discusses how, in quotes here, Zines issued veto threats to any legislation that didn't cut spending as part of the disastrous fiscal cliff strategy, which, by the way, from my understanding, was a failed plan to basically compel deficit reduction that actually sabotaged the Great Recession recovery. Basically, like, they were not actually looking at solving policies. They were just looking at, like, cutting one thing for another. So it actually got in the way of actually, like, systemically solving these issues. The article goes on. His actions with this fiscal cliff strategy also undermined the Democrats' brand as the defenders of Social Security and Medicare because, again, they're looking to just do deficit reduction at any means possible, which made him sound more like Mitt Romney than a Barack Obama, which is kind of funny considering what he's doing now. But anyways, in 2015, the article talks about how Zients was cheerleading the proposed Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal, which I personally don't like. As you guys probably are aware, I am more of a protectionist, at least in some aspects. And anyways, the article writes, he argued that in quotes, at its core, TPP is a massive tax cut for American business. And he defended the TPP's investor state dispute settlement system, 
which would have insulated multinational corporations from foreign court proceedings when they break the law. So he was very for basically protecting corporate and American businesses. And I guess for these reasons, I just find it interesting that Biden is bringing this guy in. Biden has, like I said, been much more progressive than any of us had thought he would be. And now they're bringing in a guy who is just a corporate shill and has a history of being on the wrong side of many of the issues that Biden needs to appeal to younger voters. And look, like, I don't even know if I agree with any of this stuff, but my more point is that the Republicans are like Jaws again right now. The shark goes out to sea. You think he's gone, but he's coming back. And Biden right now is, again, like finding ways to shoot himself in the foot. Because let's be honest, like Biden beat Trump because Trump was so bad. But Biden's always been the politician who shoots himself in the foot. He's actually been kind of a pretty bad politician, if you really think about it. And he always seems to find ways to hurt himself. And with this document dump, and now with bringing in this guy, I don't know who he's trying to appeal to because it's not looking good. And we have to remember that under Ron Klain, who just resigned as, you know, chief of staff, Biden is basically moving against, well, actually, let me go back. Is So under Ron Klain, Biden moved against the corporatist globalization that TPP represented and a lot of what Zients working for the Obama administration represented. And so now he's completely taking like 15 steps backwards if he goes down this road. And I don't get it. Of course, I am not in the White House, so I don't know the conversations that are actually happening. But it's it's really too bad to see, I guess is how I would put it more than anything. So we will have to see, but it's just like, God, like three or four weeks ago, I thought things were looking really up for Biden. And now he's bringing in a guy who I don't think should be chief of staff. And this document dump has pretty much given Trump a free pass. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens next. So moving on. Well, (laughs) the GOP is in disarray, as always. And today, Friday, 168 Republican National Committee members gathered at a place that really says we're here for the people, a luxury resort in Dana Point, California. And they voted by secret ballot on whether to retain Rana redacted Romney Daniels as a party chair. And it's interesting because McDaniels obviously had disappointing midterm results. She's... She's claimed to be kind of this centrist who can, you know, keep both factions together. She's called herself an honest broker who can bring the party's factions together and keep everyone hunky-dory happy. That's total bullshit. Like, she she is in for a mess. But anyways, this was kind of interesting because she was first elevated to her position by Donald Trump. But now she's faced a very spirited challenge from Harmeet Dillon, who is a batshit crazy California lawyer who represented Trump. And she also represented Carrie Lake. And she is definitely one of the election deniers out there on top. And the interesting thing is, is that election denier and MyPillow CEO, who some people call Mike Pillow, he's also seeking the position. And... 
I mean, <laughs> I just have to start by saying that I kind of wanted Mike Lindell to win just because, like, he is what the GOP deserves. A guy who is still talking about banning machines and lasers and Venezuelans. Like, like he's someone who thinks that Hugo Chavez couldn't even run Venezuela's economy, but somehow he's hacking American elections. Like, dude, give me a break. But anyways, Mike Lindell is great. Sounds like he's lost a lot of family and friends over all of this. Someone, I feel bad for him. It's like, Mike, maybe it's time to just go to bed, leave it all alone. But anyways, like, I will say that Ronna McDaniel, who is a coward, who is Romney's niece, but she can't even have Romney's name anymore because Trump hates him. And, you know, she kowtowed to all that. She did win. And... I'll get into those specifics in a minute, but she did win. But let's first just look at a couple of the other people in there. So, like I said, you have Harmeet Dillon, who is that California lawyer who represented Trump and Carrie Lake. She's kind of been seizing on that grassroots anger, and she's demanding new leadership after all the election lies that she has been spouting. And the thing with her is that there are reports now that her and Mike Lindell are working together, and she said that if she won, she would put Mike Lindell in a position of power. And look, she's popular because the thing is, is that McDaniel is kind of like a Kevin McCarthy in a sense. She has sold her soul at a discount price to keep all the wackos together, and she's done a very bad job at it, let's be completely honest. And on the other side, you have a Harmeet Dillon who is kind of the voice or the spirit animal of the RNC. Like, she is the one who says, well, I guess she represents a new side of the MAGA movement that is more about action. Like, Mike Lindell, for example, is just still challenging 2020, and McDaniel doesn't want to talk about 2020, but Dylan is part of the new movement that wants to prevent future elections from being stolen. Now, I'll remind you guys, the 2020 election was not stolen, but she is more focused on stopping Democrats by putting in Republicans to stop from stealing future elections. Like, she is so far down the rabbit hole that she's not even worried about 2020 anymore. Like, she just wants to, like, stop Democrats from ever having power again. And she's, a really, she's really appealing to the id of the Republican Party. And... Look, she is very popular. Now, weirdly enough, Ron DeSantis actually came out and supported her. Like, he's been very silent with pretty much everything happening. And then he comes out and supports her. And I'm like, what the hell? Like, like this is a very strange, strange time to come out and support her. But anyways, he did. I wonder what's in it for him. And... And I, and I think that Dylan was actually being still discussed because McDaniels, McDaniels is to blame, in a sense, for not being able to deal with the craziness. Like, she's been in denial for years about how insane Trumpism is. And the party did pour during the midterms. And she, again, is in denial, saying that the party did okay, they still took the House, but it's Harmeet Dillon who actually just openly says, no, we did awful. We need someone who actually fights and stops Democrats from taking power. I guess the way I would put it is McDaniels is an enabler. Harmeet Dillon is just a radical, like almost on the authoritarian scale. And okay, so now getting into what's happened today, 
The Washington Post notes in quotes, the Republican National Committee on Friday voted to re-elect McDaniel to a fourth to her fourth two-year term as its chair, opting not to punish her for the GOP's recent string of defeats in a contested race that exposed fissures in the party. Now, from my understanding, she won on the first ballot. She prevailed with 111 to 51. And now, <laughs> while she won, it seems like Harmeet Dillon and Mike Lindell lost more than McDaniels won just because they were so cuckoo and so annoying. And what I mean here is that I do think McDaniels is now very similar in position to Kevin McCarthy because there's an interesting NBC News article that talks about Jonathan Barnett, who's an RNC committeeman from Arkansas, and he backed Harmeet Dillon to lead the party. And he said this, after this is over, it's not over. It's going to take some time to do some rebuilding. And Harmeet still has a strong voice. All of us who are who are supporting Harmeet are not going away. We will fight. And I think like some people are like, oh, well, McDaniels won. It's all over. The RNC is going to be back to some sort of like balancing of the crazy fissures that are happening. I think that's incorrect. We have seen that she needed to really fight to get this. It was highly contested. And in a sense, like, I don't even know if the RNC is that important anymore because you have groups like Turning Point America that are doing very well. I just don't really know what the GOP is anymore, what the RNC is anymore, but we are seeing these just fractures. And I think Ronna McDaniels and Mike, or not Mike McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy are going to be broken by the end of this because they're going to have to give up a lot to maintain power. But again, I guess if you're these type of people who just wants power, maybe you're fine with that. And I mean, Ronna McDaniel is bottom of the barrel here. Like, her whole life, it was Ronna Romney McDaniel. And just because of Trump, she got rid of it. She really, she literally got rid of part of her family identity because Trump didn't like it. Part of me wanted Dylan or Mike Lindell to win because at this point, I think I'd rather just the crazies take over the ship than the enablers. The crazies believe it. The enablers just have no spine. Tell me if I'm wrong because, I mean... You could really have a very long debate about which is worse, but I don't know. Romney, or no, not Romney. Ronna McDaniels is there to stay, and I, I hope they do make her life chaotic, much like Kevin McCarthy. Maybe it's some schadenfreude, but anyways, I hope you guys have a great weekend. Lots of stuff going on. Longer episode. I want to thank you for listening, and take care of yourselves. Get some sun. Get some vitamin D. Get out there. Enjoy your life. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, all that jazz if I forgot it. Take care.